Hello, my name is Brent. The Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes 12, 8 through 14. Perfectly pointless, says the teacher. Everything is pointless. Additionally, because the teacher was wise, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He listened and investigated. He composed many proverbs. The teacher searched for pleasing words, and he wrote truthfully, truthful words honestly. The words of the wise are like iron-tipped prods. The collected sayings of the masters are like nails firmly fixed by a shepherd. Be careful, my child, of anything beyond them. There is no end to the excessive production of the scrolls. Studying too much wearies the body. So this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Worship God and keep God's commandments, because this is what everyone must do. God will definitely bring every deed to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or bad. The word, the word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Becca. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 13, 8 through 10. Don't be in debt to anyone except for the obligation to love each other. Whoever loves another person has fulfilled the law. The commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't desire what others have, and any other commandments are all summed up in one word. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Love doesn't do anything wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what fulfills the law. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Lindsay Kirchhoff. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. It is found in John 4, 7 through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes that we would see Jesus. Open our ears that we would hear your word. And open our hearts, renew our hearts that we would love you again today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been traveling this road with us the last several weeks through the book of Ecclesiastes, bravo. Today it all ends. It all comes to a conclusion, and I'm so, uh, I, I really hope that you've taken away a few things from this book. I hope that it's 
prodded you. We heard the verse this morning from Ecclesiastes 12 where he says the words of the teacher are like iron-tipped prods. He's, it, it's poking you. It's moving you. He says it's like a shepherd guiding you. And here's a few of the things, a few of the ways that I hope that this series has guided you. First of all, I hope it's prodded you to question any kind of optimism or hopefulness or joy that is shallow, that is rooted in a shallow way. I hope that it's caused you to sort of say, wait a minute, I've had my confidence because I had this and I had this in my life and I had this. But Ecclesiastes has made me say those, have, those things have shallow roots. I hope this series has been a way of poking you and prodding you and saying, why are you so full of this empty optimism, a shallow optimism? But I also hope that this book has been like a shepherd's rod guiding you, shepherding you through your cynical moments. I think for many of us, there are moments where we feel very cynical and we think, oh, that's not going to work. Ah, that's not going to happen. Ah, you know. And Ecclesiastes can be a way of saying, okay, okay, I see that cynicism, but, but what is it leading you to? Is it pointing you to a deeper longing? Is it pointing you to a deeper desire that you've not been paying attention to prior to this? See, Ecclesiastes can do that. Can say, good, your, your little cynicism about this and this and this are meant to be an invitation into showing you a deeper longing, a deeper thirst inside of you. I also hope that Ecclesiastes has helped you to realize that when you accept the limitations of a thing, you can also accept the gifts of a thing. When you say, this is good, it's not everything I need, but it's good, then you can all of a sudden give God thanks for it. And and then it can lead you to life beyond life under the sun. Throughout this book, you know, the teacher character has said to us, okay, this is life under the sun. It's empty. It's empty. But then he gives us these little hints. Halfway through the series, we talked about how the teacher says, there is God up in heaven. And here you are on earth. You don't see it all. You don't know it all. But there is more than what you can see and know. So here we are in the conclusion of all of it, and if you have your Bibles or your phones or whatever, verse 13 of chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes is where we're going to camp out this morning. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The first question we want to ask is, why is this the conclusion? Why is this the way he sums it up? Is this kind of the teacher's way of saying, hey, life is kind of unpredictable. There's good and there's bad. So, hey, just, just, you know, just focus on God and then one day you'll fly away, you know? Is this a, a way of spiritualizing life, of saying, we don't really know, but hey, there's heaven with streets of gold and glory, you know? no. No, he's not spiritualizing life. In fact, what he's doing is he's showing us the secret of life. And that's what we've called this final week in the series, the secret of life. One of the things the teacher is saying, why the reason he he says fear God and keep his commandments is because he knows the way we are wired. Something about us as human beings, we we have this need to worship this design to bend our lives around something. We could look for an organizing principle, kind of a rule that trumps all rules, or maybe a thing or a person or an object or a pursuit, 
And we have need of something to kind of orient our whole lives around, an organizing center, if you will, or a fixed point to which everything else is relative. And we can say, wait a minute, how am I doing? Am I doing good? Am I doing all right? We need some way of measuring, some yardstick, some north star, some kind of center. And he's saying, look, this is the way you're wired. So the question is not, do you worship? The question is, what do you worship? And he's saying the conclusion is fear God because if it's not God, it's going to be something else. Something else will drive you. Something else will fill that spot. It might even be you itself. And so right up front here, I want to talk about the difference between an idol and an icon. An idol versus an icon. Now, an idol, maybe some of us are familiar with this language. You've been in church a bit. I grew up in Malaysia where there literally are loads and loads of idols. Uh, My dad's family, um, uh, many of them remain Hindus, uh, but through my growing up, many of them were, were Hindus. And so from time to time when we would visit them, it was very obvious who held the place of God in their life. You could see it on the mantle. You could see a statue of Ganesh or whatever different Hindu god. And so in Asia and places around the world where there are literally idols, you have to be clear when you're calling them to Jesus. You have to be clear that worshiping Jesus means renouncing these idols. And Hindus, if you've had experience with this, can be the trickiest people to get this message across to because Hindus are very willing to just add another God to the list. And so, oh, I mean, we had friends and family who would say, yeah, I'll worship Jesus. And what they're, also, what they're not telling you is, and I'll also worship Shiva and, and Ganesh, you know, and the list goes on. And that Jesus just gets added to the list. And so doing ministry in Malaysia involved a lot of being clear to people that when you worship this God, you have to renounce these gods. I sometimes wish things were that clear for us in America. Because our idols are invisible. And our idols are less obvious. Our idols are much more subtle. And so when you say to a person, worship Jesus, they say, you bet. And also my career and my financial goals and my, and on and on it goes. And so we say, worship Jesus, they say, you got it. And there's all these invisible idols. And so we need a little bit of help this morning reflecting on what an idol is. Let's start with a simple definition. An idol is something finite that we treat as ultimate. It's finite. It's limited. It's got fixed boundaries. Think of the physical idols in the, the Old Testament. It's so funny in the Psalms and the prophets, the way they mock these idols. You know, One of the passages says, you chop up all this wood. Half of it you use for a fire to warm yourself and bake cakes. The other half you set on a stump and call it your God. Like, Does that make any sense? And he's sort of mocking it. But what's he saying? He's saying an idol is something finite. It's fixed. We do that. We take things that are finite and treat them as if they're ultimate. An icon, by contrast, is something finite that reflects the ultimate. Both idols and icons are finite. They're physical things. They're limited things. One is being treated as if it's ultimate, an idol. The other is being allowed to reflect or reveal the ultimate. So if you were part of a different uh, tradition of Christianity, you might be more familiar with icons. I mean, I, I, I'm not familiar with it as much, but there, there are different images or pictures, maybe even a, a picture of a historical figure that you say, ah, oh, that person represents to me the goodness and faithfulness of God. 
An icon is also something finite, but it ends up revealing or reflecting something ultimate. How do we know if something is an idol in your life, in my life? How do we know? How can we tell if something is being treated in this way? Well, there's probably many things you can look at, but here are three. First of all, it becomes the orienting center of your life. It becomes the orienting center. Everything around your life is arranged in relation to this thing. You're like, okay, well, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to get that, because ultimately what I want is this. We're going to give some examples in a moment. Secondly, it is something that is an end in itself instead of a means to an end. It becomes the terminating point of all of your desire and affection and longing and pursuit. It becomes the, the very end. It, that's the goal. That's the thing. That's what I'm at. It doesn't become a channel to something bigger. It becomes an end in itself. Thirdly, you are asking things of it that it cannot give. An idol is something that you're asking things of it. Give me this. And it's saying, oh, I can't. One of the other favorite, favorite passages in the Old Testament of mine is where the prophets mock the idols and say, they don't see you, do they? They don't hear you, do they? They don't even have arms that can move, do they? In fact, Elijah, when he's calling down fire and, and the prophets of Baal go first, do you remember this story? And they're, they're saying, Baal, bring down fire. And Elijah starts mocking them. And he says, oh, maybe your God's gone away on a long journey which was an idiomatic expression for gone to the bathroom. I mean, this is Elijah mocking him, saying, hey, maybe he's, you know, got some business to take care of. The message is you're asking something of it that it cannot give. Now keep this up there on the screen for a moment, and let's think through a few things in our life when they become like this. What about money? Is it possible to live your life in such a way that money has become the organizing center of your life? That all of your decisions are in relation to how much you can make or earn or save or spend? <laughs> and all of a sudden you think, okay, okay, this, this, is, this, this is how I decide. And it's become the way you make decisions. Now, right away some of you are like, oh, that's not me because I don't have any money. And you tend to think that the people who have made money the center of their orbit, of their lives, are the people who have loads of it. Actually, the truth is it affects all of us, regardless of how much money you have. Do you know, you could be a Dave Ramsey person, clipping coupons, and have money as your idol. Because you're obsessed about how much you can save and, and, and put away and how much debt you can pay. And everything about your life and your energy and your decision making is all about this as the organizing center of your life. Sometimes when I do uh, premarital, there's this test that the couples take that kind of, it's just a little exercise and it shows them uh, where money ranks in, in their life and what money means. And so sometimes I'll have a couple where they score a bit high in money as um, security. And so then they'll feel bad. They're like, oh, ooh, we scored a little high on that. I say, that's okay. It is true that money can probably provide you at least a sense of security with regard to retirement and, and a place to live. And da, da, you know. Sure. But you know what happens over time is you start with the legitimate things that a thing can provide, and you start to ask it for things it cannot provide. 
So you're like, well, money can help you make your payments this month. No doubt about it. Money can help you have a better shot at retirement. But then all of a sudden you start to invest all of your hope for security into money. And you think, you know what? If I have the right retirement, I will totally have a secure future. But it's a lie, isn't it? Because you can have all the money in the world and be struck with an incurable disease. Now, I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just saying that security is a thing ultimately that money cannot give. And so when you start to ask things of it that it cannot give, that's when you know it's become an idol. What about another one? What about sex? Now you're listening. Sex sometimes becomes this thing that we say, oh, you know what? You know what sex can give? Sex can give me everything I'm longing for with regard to intimacy and love and fulfillment. And if I could just... And what we're doing is we're asking things of it that it could never give in itself. We're making, actually, we're making sex an end in itself. And saying, well, this is it. This is the pinnacle. There are so many good Christian youth group kids who are like, the only reason they want to get married is because I just can't not have sex anymore. I'm just going to get married. And it becomes this terminus, this ending point, this end in itself. You know, part of the discussion that we're having when we say, oh, how can you deprive people of, of, of sex and all this? This is the way. What we're, the, the, the underlying myth is that sex is the sole way to get to love. And that if you deprive a person of sex, of sexual expression, you're depriving them of love. And actually, it's Christians who should say, do you know, there is a wide range to intimacy and friendship, and relationship, and life. That yes, sex is one part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And we Christians, by perpetuating this thing of like, oh man, I'm just burning, so i got to get married. All you're doing is worshiping the same idol as everyone else does. You're saying that sex is the highest and only and ultimate form of intimacy, ignoring spiritual friendship, community, all of the other ways that we find love and joy even in life under the sun. And I'm telling you, if you don't learn this, it will get you even in your marriage. When you say, oh, we're married, so now sex should be the, the way that our marriage is strengthened all the time. It's like it's a part of it. But it is not the sum total of your married life. And when you see, you know couples, I know couples, when it becomes that, the sum total of everything about intimacy all of a sudden, other things begin to fall apart. You forget how to talk. You forget how to share other ways of connecting. You, anytime you take a part and call it the whole, it's become an idol. You can't take one piece and call it the whole. What about power? Money, sex, and power, the three oldest idols in the world, right? What about power? So, oh, well, we all know power. That's, well, that's not Christian. I would never elevate power. No, of course not. We have Christian versions for this. It's called influence. It's called a platform. If I read another pastor who says he's going to do a reality show for the sake of its platform or whatever, I'm going to... <sighs> because platform is not an end in itself. But when power and influence and fame grab us all of a sudden, we orient our decisions around it. And you see it happen. You know, another good Christian word, legacy. I want to leave a legacy. 
How will they remember me? You know? It just sounds so, it's like, oh, there's something beautiful about that. True. But even if legacy becomes the organizing center of your life, it will always leave you short. How do you think midlife crises happen? Because you start wondering, am I leaving a legacy? Oh, God. It's good and fine to sing, I want to leave a legacy when you're like 15 years old at youth camp. You know, you're like, yes, God. But when you're 55 and you're wondering, I mean, I don't know, you know. You've, count, you've made that thing the God of your life, and it's a cruel God. All of these are things. Now, one last one that I'll give as an example. What about family? Now, this is treading on sacred ground. Because we've all been taught, family comes first. I've got to focus on my family. Family's got to be everything. Family's got to be the family's the pinnacle. Actually, family is good, but it's not the ultimate. In fact, family can even become a secularized version of the kingdom of God. Let me unpack that for a minute. People who say, it's all about my family, my mother, my brother, my sisters, we are family, it's our people. You've actually created a secular version of the kingdom of God. Jesus very strikingly has things to say about how the kingdom cuts across family lines. They said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're looking for you. And he says, who are my family? Isn't it all these people who do the will of my father? You're like, Jesus, tone it down a little. That's a little harsh. Family first, Jesus. And then he says, whoever does not forsake father and mother to follow me. And you're like, oh, oh, oh." he didn't really mean that. It's just a metaphor. And then you have Paul saying that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. There is no longer Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female. All of a sudden, Paul's saying, look, there's a new way to define your identity and your belonging, and it's through Jesus and Jesus alone. That means, friends, that Palestinian Christians are more your brother than, I'll let you fill in the blank. And this challenges us because in our God and country rhetoric, it's totally subsumed by a secularized idol we've called family. Family values, family. Not only has it left those who are single wondering if they can ever belong in the kingdom, I will. Because New Life Church is not a family ministry center. New Life Church is a church for all people. It's the kingdom of God for all who are in Christ. And so there is this ugly side of making family an idol when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. And all, you, you, you start to forget who really are your brothers and sisters. Oh, wait a minute, that person, wait a minute, that, per, that, that person belongs to me. I can't get all territorial and say, go bomb them, go kill them. Because, oh, wait a second, I've got brothers and sisters who live there. Now you think differently. Your politics are different. Why? Because family is a secularized vision of the kingdom of God. Family's not ultimate. God is ultimate. And God's kingdom cuts across all lines. The only blood that is thicker than water is the blood of Jesus Christ.
That's the only thing that matters. You see, Ecclesiastes has this phrase. It says over and over again, it says, Havel, empty, 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 empty. But it's literally the word for vapor, mist, breath. And it's interesting because the Old Testament prophets use that same word, Havel, once in a while to talk about idols. They say idols are Havel. They have other words, proper Hebrew words for false gods. But once in a while, just for fun, they say, you know what those things are? They're dust, vapor, nothing. I think the message that the Bible is trying to tell us is that when you treat finite things like ultimate things, they become nothing. I'll say it again. When you treat a finite thing like an ultimate thing, it becomes nothing. You've killed it. You've ruined it. You've elevated it beyond what it can hold, and it turned into dust. Another way to say it is when you treat a good thing like a god, it becomes a demon. When you treat a good thing like a god, it becomes a demon. C.S. Lewis in his little book, The Four Loves, that he wrote decades ago, said, love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. There is a way of taking our human loves and elevating them to the ultimate and saying, this is everything, love, 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 love. In our human expression of it, love. And then we wonder, why am I in such torture and torment? Because it's become a demon. And it's become a demon because it first became a god. When a good thing becomes a god, it actually becomes a demon in your life. The teacher sums up Ecclesiastes with fear God and keep his commandments because he's saying to us, it takes faith to enjoy finite things. It takes faith in God in order to enjoy finite things. Why? How does that work? Because when your faith is fully invested in God, it means you're free to enjoy finite things in as much as they, are, they can give you. Does that make sense? You can have a great vacation and not be bummed if it, or not be devastated. You can be bummed. You'd not be devastated if it rained every day. Oh, we're going camping. This is the camping trip we're looking forward to. Oh, it rains all weekend. It's, it bums you out, but it doesn't destroy you. Why? Because your faith is not ultimately invested in it. It takes faith in God to be able to enjoy finite things. See, the, the impression that we've sometimes given non-Christians is that we hate fun. That we don't know how to enjoy anything that's not prayer, you know. You can't enjoy a good beer. You can't enjoy, oh, did I just say that? You can't enjoy, you can't enjoy a good sporting, you can't enjoy, oh, it's, it's too much fun. Be careful. No. In fact, it's the opposite. When your faith is invested in God, you're actually free to enjoy finite things without them devastating you. It could be a rotten time with your friends and be like, well, that's disappointing. Good thing I didn't put everything in that. You see what I'm saying? Listen, how else can you explain the mystery and the miracle of Christians fleeing ISIS and singing songs of praise? I, I don't, you can't explain that. Refugees living for months and months and months 
on the outskirts of Lebanon because Lebanon can't say yes because if they said yes, it would triple their population or whatever it is and and not sure how to handle all this. And they're living with people who had careers, people who had professions, people whose kids were going to school one day and the next day they're living in a shipping container. How do such people continue to live? Because they've invested their faith somewhere else. And so they're, they're able to hold through the good and through the bad. It takes faith to enjoy finite things. The gospel shows us that sin is not simply rule-breaking. This is another thing I would love for us to get better at as Christians, to not talk about sin primarily as rule-breaking. Oh, you broke the rules. You know, oh, you sinned. I love, there's another vision that the church has had throughout the ages of sin as this downward and inward spiral. Dante's Inferno is a beautiful picture of this. Now, I've I've never read Dante's Divine Comedy. Uh, One, because it's a poem, a long poem. I'm not a fan of long poems. Um, Short ones, maybe, but uh, it got to be real short. And then, like, roses are reds kind of thing. And then, and then, and then, and then secondly, I I always sort of thought that, that Dante's work was about the afterlife. And I thought it's just such such a weird vision of the afterlife, uh, tormented hell and purgatory and all this stuff. But I'm reading another book right now where this person is explaining it as actually a metaphor for how sin works and how grace works. That actually, it's not meant to be taken in this literal, this is how judgment happens. But in the spiral of Dante's Inferno, what you see is that each sin takes you lower and closer to yourself, inward, until the very last bottom of the spiral, guess who's there? You. You. That the end of it all is not your making an idol out of sex or making an idol out of money. The end of it all, the spiral that continues downward and inward, finally ends with you. That actually, you are the worst God you've ever had. You are the worst God you've ever had. And Dante's picture of judgment is God saying, okay, you've been fighting me. You say you want to do that. Okay, fine, fine. Have it then. And have it to its fullest. C.S. Lewis picks up on this. I think it's in The Great Divorce where he writes that hell is God saying to you, you, thy will be done. Okay, okay. You said you want to be in charge. You said you want to, you said you want to. Okay, have it. And have it to the full. It's sort of like a parent, and I don't recommend this as a technique, but it's sort of like a a parent who can't get their kid to stop eating candy. And they say, okay, fine, have it. Have it for breakfast, lunch, dinner. And finally, by like, I don't know, day two, maybe, maybe the end of day one, they're like, and you're like, you see? No, just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Never do that. Never do that. (laughs) But... (laughs) Dante's vision of judgment is a little bit like that. It's God saying, you've been living like you wanted this above all things, then have it and see what a nightmare it is. See what a nightmare it is. You are the worst God you've ever had. NASA defines a black hole as... A place in space where gravity pulls so much that even light cannot escape. 
Gravity's pulling so much that even light can't get out. It's just being sucked in. And the reason it is like that is because matter has been squeezed into a tiny space. This is how NASA explains it. Too much matter has been squeezed into a tiny space, and so gravity's pulling inward so strong that not even light gets out. The crazy thing about black holes is once upon a time they were stars. Dying stars become black holes. And I can't help but think of this as a metaphor for sin. You and I created in the image of God, destined to shine with his glory, but something happened where we took too much matter and invested it into too small a space. We said joy, ultimate joy, happiness, ultimate happiness, peace, ultimate peace. Oh, these things are massive, but I'm going to invest that in this itty-bitty tiny thing called me. And all of a sudden, it's like the gravitational pull became so strong that everything in your life was about you. And not even light gets out anymore. You've become, sin is you being a dying star. Sin is a star, is you, a person once made to radiate with the glory of God, turned inward on itself because we've over-invested meaning into a place that can't actually hold it. You are the worst God you've ever had. The gospel invites us out. The gospel invites us out of this spiral by ordering our affections and our desires. Keep that up for a moment on the screen. Sometimes we think that salvation is simply God saving us from the consequences of our law-breaking. Fine, that's an okay way to look at it. But you know another way to look at it? If sin is the spiral downward and inward upon ourselves, then the gospel says, let me save you not just from the consequences of your desires, but let me save you by re ordering your desires. Let me show you what it means to have proper orbit, to be realigned so that you can shine again. The gospel invites us out of this by ordering our affections and our desires. Did you know that sin is not simply loving the wrong things? Like, oh, I'm so terrible. I just always want to do that. I keep looking at porn. I just, I, keep, I just want that. But you know, the, the key to freedom from something like that is not to say, I've got to start loving this, but to say, what is it that, you're re, that you are right to want but wrong in the way you're wanting it? Because sin is not simply loving the wrong things. It's loving the right things wrongly. So you know what you're craving? You're craving intimacy craving approval and being cherished or whatever. Those are right things. But when they get pursued wrongly and distorted and disordered, it begins to destroy you. Sin is love that is distorted and disordered. And the gospel is making it whole again. Saying, let, let, let me redeem those desires and teach you to love rightly. The New Testament reading this morning was Paul in Romans saying, all of the commandments are summed up in this phrase. What was it? 
Love your neighbor as yourself. If the conclusion in Ecclesiastes is fear God or worship God, because this idea of fear is not to be freaked out, but it is reverence, awe, surrender, submission. If Ecclesiastes' conclusion is surrender, submit, worship, fear God, and keep his commandments, and Paul says that the commandments are summed up by loving your neighbor, then we might say that the conclusion of it all is worship God and love well. Worship God and love well. You see, it's not enough to say love wins. The gospel says more. The gospel says love well. Love first things first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then begin to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is all you need. The Beatles said that. (laughs) Not the Bible. The Bible calls us into a kind of love that promises to reorder us and the things we long for. See, sometimes in our in our day, unconditional love is confused with unconditional acceptance. Acceptance is beautiful and a profound thing we can offer people. But love is stronger. Love is stronger than acceptance. Love sees a person spiraling and says, can I help lead you out? Dante is given a guide, Virgil, the poet, who helps lead him out of the inferno, through purgatory, and into paradiso. We all need a guide who loves us more than we love ourselves. He says, look, you don't see it, but this gravitational pull inward is going to destroy you. It will put all of the light in your life out. If this is the ending... We are to worship God and love well. And where on earth is the beginning? Where do we begin? Our gospel reading this morning was from Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And it's a profound story because sometimes it's said, oh, this woman, you know, she really messed up because she had all these husbands. But if you think about it, in the first century, she didn't have a choice about when she was leaving a marriage. A woman was treated very much like property. So the, the, the reality is that if she had four husbands and was now living with a man that was not her husband, the reality was someone had been mistreating her. And so Jesus finds her totally run down. Sometimes the desires in our heart are disordered because someone has distorted them in us. Sometimes it happens because a, a poor father or mother or friend or church or whatever has defaced this thing in us. And we find that we're living with desires that are so strong, but they're somehow disordered and distorted, and we don't really know why. And one day at the well, the place where we go to get another drink, to make it through just another day, we see Jesus. And Jesus says, if you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked me for a drink. For all who are hurting this morning, for all who are thirsty, 
The invitation away from false gods is not of a scolding God, but of a wooing lover. It's not the shame of a disappointed schoolmaster. It's the affectionate call of Jesus saying, where do you start? Start here. Start with me. Start with water that I can give you that will make you never thirst again. Start here. Don't start with a new relationship or another job or a new set of friends or a new... Whoever drinks from those fountains will thirst again. But start here. Start here. If the ending is worship God and love well, then the beginning is Jesus as living water. Would you bow your heads this morning? Our prayer of confession nearly every week is all about our love being distorted and disordered. We say these words, we have not loved you with our whole heart, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Why? Why are we praying these words? It's a way of saying, God, in some way, I've got idols in my life. In some way, I'm elevating things to be ultimate when they have no business being ultimate. I'm asking things of them that they actually cannot give me. And we pray it as a confession because we know what's being offered. What's being offered is not shame and scorn and a scolding. What's being offered is living water. The love that quenches our deepest thirst.